Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Reggie Middleton to the show tonight. He's an entrepreneurial investor who guides a small team of investment analysts who uncover truths that he says seldom, if ever, is published in the mainstream media or Wall Street analyst reports. Eric Sprott, the CEO of Sprott Asset Management, a Toronto firm that manages about $5 billion, subscribes to Reggie Middleton's research. Eric says that his work is so detailed, so accurate, it's among the best in the world. He's been on the Kaiser Report, Russia Today, Capital Accounts, CNBC, and Reggie Middleton is responsible for calling the housing crash of 2006 and in September of 2007, the collapse of Bear Stearns in June of 2008, the warning of Lehman Brothers in February uh, of 2008, when most people had no clue what was going on, the fall of commercial real estate in September of 2007, and the collapse of general properties in 2007. There really isn't anybody in the world today who is in front of what's happening in the financial marketplace, both nationally and internationally. Some people are just catching on to him. These people are very big people who are catching on to him. He is monitored and watched believe it or not, by many banks, by industry analysts, by investors, and hedge fund owners. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the guy who has the foresight in the world to call the booms and the bus. He's the owner of the Boom Bus blog. We're going to hit a home run today with Reggie Middleton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Reggie Middleton live from New York. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk with you. You're an interesting cat in the sense that you have so much wisdom and insight and poise. I've watched you in so many interviews and listened to you and read your blog. And I'll tell you that there's very few people that are even capable of comprehending the largesse and the comprehensive nature of what you speak about. And I think that most of us are in a position, even people who think they're in the know, of touching the elephant parts and thinking we know what's going on. And it's clear as time goes on that the reason why you have millions of people coming to your blog at Boom Bus Blog is that you are monitoring something in a particular way. You do have a gift of foresight, not only great research ability and the market fundamentals, but you have some kind of foresight. And what I'd like to do is go through some material with you that I've spent many, many days on and ask you some questions and dialogue with you about it. You brought up this great term called sophisticated ignorance. And even though people may say, oh, God, that sounds arrogant or maybe be offended and some people will laugh, I thought it was very astute. But I have a sense of what it means. I really want you to explain where did it come from and what do you mean? Well, it's a term. Actually, it's a term that I heard on a record uh, from uh, Kanye West, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I use it to apply uh, simply broken down uh, as the meaning of the word. The layperson believes that the powers that be know what they're doing and act in both um, the layperson's best interest or having a level of expertise um, guiding their actions that would have the best possible outcome. And this is simply not true. Um, there 
is a perception of extreme sophistication in the central banks, such as the Federal Reserve and the ECB. Um, there's a perception that they are not all knowledgeable, but quite knowledgeable, and can handle whichever problem is thrown at them. That has proven to be um, the antithesis of reality. In reality, these entities have failed to anticipate the problems that have come to the forefront. Um, they've failed to handle the problems once they've gotten there, and they've actually failed to put the problems to bed over a period of years, five years, and counting as of right now. So I use the term sophisticated ignorance to explain the fact of ignorance as in its technical term, not knowing, lacking of knowledge, but still giving the air of sophistication. And don't you think that many markets are made by perception, investments are made by perception, and that perception, wrong and right, is guiding a lot of what's going on in finance and economics? That's the way that it traditionally has been. But as of right now, what's guiding uh, finance and economics is uh, basically the invisible, or not so invisible hand, of the powers that be, such as the Federal Reserve and the central banks. The, what the central banks have done, the major central banks have done, and a lot of the smaller and lesser banks have done by following in lockstep, is they've eliminated uh, market pricing and capitalism in the market. So they've reduced the cost of capital to near zero, actual zero, or less than zero. And they've caused the participants in the market to not respect their capital. So they throw capital um, at certain risks without you know, a requisite return because basically they never paid for the money. It's not their money. So even though perception may guide someone to go for a company because that company will promise X percent return given X percent risk, uh, that's, that's flown out the window. And right now, since they have capital that they haven't paid for, um, they can go after any risk whatsoever. And if something were to happen, it would blow up, they could always turn to the Fed or the Treasury for a bailout or the ECB. And this is what's happening throughout most of uh, the EU and much of continental Europe, um, the UK, and the US to an extreme extent, where you no longer have the mechanisms that make capitalism work traditionally, such as risk, reward, uh, the responsibility for or the punishment for failing in the marketplace, which is to go out of business, or the reward for succeeding in the marketplace, which is to exceed past those who failed. You know, right now you have failures who still run the market in a near monopolistic position, such as the big banks. And you have those entities who could potentially succeed, but they can't succeed because of the big, fat-fingered hand of the powers that be, such as the central reserve, I'm sorry, the central banks, have created a marketplace where market pricing doesn't exist. I have a very strange question for you that seems like an obvious answer, but as I thought about it for days, it doesn't seem as obvious to me anymore, and it's this. What business do you think the banks are in now? When we were young, we used to think <laughs> the banks were in the business to lend money for an interest rate. But what business are the banks in, given the current conditions of the world and the activities of the banks? Because it doesn't look like that's what they're about. When you say banks, you uh, right now the term bank is used to describe a very, very large cross-section of entities. Um, way back in the days, banks were entities that lent money. You know, and they lent money. They gauged, they 
um, assumed the risk, they underwrote the risk, they gauged, attempted to gauge how extreme that risk was, and then they let money at an interest rate commensurate with the risk plus profit. Okay, that was back in, you know, the 1700s, 1600s, 1800s, etc. Right now, you have a cross-section of entities, and a lot of them are called banks. You have uh, savings, SNLs, you have uh, regular retail banks, commercial banks, investment banks, uh, a plethora of entities. But the biggest banks are not those entities that lend money. The biggest banks are basically hedge funds. They're federally insured hedge funds. You know, they're entities that speculate, trade, and they're insured by the federal government against failure. And they also have a license to lend money and to collect savings. The problem is, for the most part, they don't make their money doing that. And the, again, the fat-fingered hand of the Federal Reserve has dropped the risk, um, has dropped the reward of saving to near zero, or less than zero. So these banks cannot afford to make a living by lending money. So they speculate by buying risky objects, uh, risky assets. Uh, if the risky assets go bust or the value just below a certain level, the regulators have given the, the green light to go ahead to ignore the the value aspects of these assets in the anticipation that they will somehow go up in value. But if you run up into a bubble, you get to the tippy top of the bubble, the bubble busts. But if you claim the value of the assets at the top of the bubble, hoping that the bubble reinflates itself, as long as the bubble has not fully reinflated, you'll never get that asset value back. So it's a useless game to pretend that it's worth something that is not in the anticipation that someday it will be. You know the conversation that people have about the market fundamentals. Let the markets do what they will. Let them work organically. Let them express organically. I accept that, except that the markets are no longer just organic. They're synthetically being altered and interfered with, with derivatives and credit default swaps and all kinds of other activities that are not the traditional markets that people grew up with 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Do you agree with me or do you disagree with me? I agree that the markets are no no longer functioning as capitalistic marketplaces, as the free market. But the markets probably never, especially in the U.S., function as purely capitalistic open markets. Most entities, especially entities in power, would never want that to happen because just like the free market forces brought them to power, it can also take them out of power. So there is a certain amount of regulation um, that is both desired and most likely necessary. Right, for a relatively smooth-running uh, nation, okay? And that's what regulation is for, such as the SEC to enforce crime, et cetera. If you um, allow the market to police itself against fraud and crime, it may or may not happen. It may happen over a certain amount of time. But in the meantime, a lot of uh, lay people will get trampled and not so in institutions as well. The issue is, and, and, I, and I do take issue with um, the instruments traded in the market as well, it's, in my opinion, irrelevant which instruments are traded in the market. If it's true market pricing, they'll get priced accordingly. So credit default swaps are traded in a truly open market, and they're worth 30 cents on the dollar, then eventually you're not going to get your bid hit until, uh, I mean, your ask hit until it comes down to 30 in a bid-ask situation. So it's not so much derivatives that are the problem or the assets that are trading. It's interference in the free trading of the assets, and it's fraud, basically. If you defraud somebody by selling them a credit default swap under false pretenses, um, basically lying to them, and then the fraud is discovered, and those perpetrators of the fraud, those who perpetrated the fraud, 
are not prosecuted or punished in any way, well, then there's no reason to discontinue the fraud. Fraud becomes profitable. Okay, but that's not capitalism. In a true capitalistic society, if I sold you a car for, you know, $100,000 and it had a total of $50 worth of parts and the car broke down, you know, within one year, you would not be able to sell that car again. Um, it's a good chance you'd have civil and criminal liability, but that's not what's happening in the market. You know, those who are perpetrating a fraud are actually rewarded for the fraud, and so they have an incentive to continue defrauding. Okay, and the natural forces in what would be a capitalistic market are not taking or not coming to play. There's a book called Clouded Titles about how the mortgage industry has separated the notes from the title and then sold derivatives on the back end of the title of 70 million properties in the United States. And a guy named Dave Krieger, who wrote this book called Clouded Titles, did the investigation on this. And he said one of the things the banks are very afraid of, the Achilles heels for the banks, are something called the chain of title. But the reason I'm bringing it up to you is that there's a whole securitization that happens on the back end of that that consumers have no idea. Some people will have already paid for their homes and find out that they don't own their homes at all or that there's 35 different entities involved on their title. To me, it's a very important issue, the whole thing about derivatives and what's going on on a lot of different levels. To me, this is not only fraud, it's criminal, and this is affecting everybody in the United States who has property in some way, shape, or form. I just wondered what you think about it. This is an interesting topic and relatively complex because uh, a lot of the laws change and vary from state to state. Uh, the When you purchase a property, when you purchase a property in the state of New York, for instance, um, you, if you purchase it and you get a mortgage, you have the t- deal, deal, I'm sorry, you have okay. the title passed over to you, okay, you take out a mortgage, you finance part of that purchase, whatever the purchase is, the mortgage draw um, actually has a claim on the deed. So they put a lien on the deed for the amount of the uh, mortgage, and as you pay it off, the uh, principal is reduced, and the amount of that uh, and that amount of that claim is reduced proportionately. What the mortgager has now done since the banking industry is not what it used to be, and the banking industry is much more of a hedge fund now than uh, a traditional lender, is they've taken this loan, they chop it up, and they separate the parts, and then they sell it off, okay, um, to securities markets, this whole loans, et cetera. Then those who buy it then take what is sold, they slice and dice it, they leverage it up, they put pieces together, and they create additional derivative products. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with a, a derivative per se. No, derivative is not a bad word. The U.S. dollar was a derivative at one point. It derived its value from um, a unit of gold. Okay, what makes a derivative bad and what makes these mortgage products bad is when there is a dearth of reporting and clarity. So there is no um, a recompense for fraudulent acts. And you can hide things, um, you can mislead, you can basically lie without any penalty. And this is what's happened in the mortgage market. Now, the claim to the deed does get muddied if you can't figure out who the original lender is. And it's very difficult to figure out who the original lender is. If that lender sold it off, and then the loan is then chopped up in several different parts, and the different parts are sold off, which part of the loan has claim to title, or, or the lien on the title, and for how much? You know, and especially when the um, correct papers weren't executed and signed to pass off the lien from entity to entity to entity. So 
so all your fourth and fifth entity, and that entity is now split up and has to share claim to that uh, lien on the title with 30 or 40 entities in a pool of securities that's been leveraged eight times. Now you can see where it's an extreme problem. There's even beyond that. I'm going to do a whole show on just this because it's so complicated. There's so much happening. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Can you stand by? We're going to go to a break for about a minute and a half, and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rain-making time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Welcome back to the show. This is Kim Greenhouse. We're live with Reggie Middleton from Boom Bus Blog. And we're talking about securitization, the complication in mortgages, and I wanted to know if you had anything else you'd like to say about that, Reggie. I have a ton of questions, but please go ahead. In a nutshell, there's going to be a lot of precedent set, legal precedent set in the mortgage industry because these problems have uh, never been come across before. And it will be interesting. I can see where there's a possibility that a lot of banks will be driven out of business if right has been done and a level of law is to be followed. But to date, um, there have been some relatively minor um, legal losses in the banking industry, but nobody has re- really ever been taken a task and served a significant criminal uh, sentence or even been convicted of a significant crime or faced uh, a civil liability that was equivalent to his one year of earnings. So I wouldn't hold my breath for justice to be done, so to say. Um, this is one reason why you would have a call for true capitalist markets because nobody may go to jail, but in a capitalist market, once an entity fails, it fails, it's over with, and something new comes to take its place, much like the phoenix, which crashes and burns and is reborn from the ashes. You say that you're not a optimist, you're not a pessimist, that you're a realist, and that's an obvious clarification for all of us. But what does that mean? You're not an optimist, you're not a pessimist, you're a realist. We understand what it appears to mean, but... What's guiding you about that? You mean you have no emotional connection or you don't have a stake in the game? Do you mean that you're neutral? Is that what that means? I just want to understand. Yes, I'm neutral. I, um, 
I don't benefit from markets going up or down um, per se. Uh, if I take a position in the market, a bearish position in the market, or a bullish position, well, then, of course, I benefit if the market moves into the direction of my position. But, you know, you don't take a position and try and force a multi-trillion dollar market into your position. You attempt to figure out which direction the market's going to go. Uh, not necessarily the market, because I don't judge the entire market, but which direction a particular asset is going to flow into, and then you position yourself accordingly. Okay, there's absolutely no, I mean, I have absolutely no emotion once it comes to the stock of, say, Merrill Lynch or uh, J.P. Morgan, where it goes up and down. If the company's going to do well, then I want to benefit on upside. If I don't feel it's going to do well, then I want to benefit on downside. Uh, but a lot of um, participants do is that they bring emotions into a logic game, and that's very much like bringing life to a gunfight. You know, you are um, improperly true from the very beginning, and usually things go downhill from there. Because it gets in the way of introspection, right? Exactly. It gets in the way of uh, logical thought, because you're not looking for the truth. You're looking for uh, verification of your ideals. You know what's interesting? There's been a lot of work done in the area of neuromarketing. And some of the best people in the world have found out through fMRIs done on individuals that most human beings, even when it comes to something as logical as finance and as serious as finance, that most human beings are making their decisions from the limbic system, the emotional system of the brain. Even though you know, we all agree that business is business and business should be business and you shouldn't be emotionally tied in. It's interesting that even when people are using what they're calling, you know, this logical introspection, this analytical side, a lot of the decisions get made from the limbic system. I just thought I'd share that with you. It's kind of interesting. I really want to talk to you about modern day banking runs because a lot of people are very afraid right now, Reggie. And I'd like you to share the conditions that you feel are the precursor to modern-day banking runs, what are the conditions, if you could explain it to the public? Well, the conditions for a banking run, um, especially as it pertains to uh, the current time frame, is, number one, a bank in distress, uh, whether it, it publishes the fact that it's in distress or not. Uh, the, the stress of the current banks in uh, the banking system in the U.S., in Europe, and in Asia um, all stem from primarily the same thing, and that is a significant depreciation of assets on its balance sheet. Um, they've, the way the banking model works is they get a dollar, they then borrow $9, and then have $10 in assets. $1 in equity, but $10 in assets. So they're roughly 10% equity. They then go and do things with those $10 to attempt to make money. They either buy assets or they make loans, or they may trade uh, back and forth to try and create revenue from spreads on purchases. But whatever they do, they do. They create some type of uh, activity to try and make money. Now, at a 10-to-1 leverage ratio, that means they have $1 equity for every $10 of assets. Um, they're very sensitive to profit and loss. So let's suppose that they um, had 10% gain on that $10 that they had. That would be $1. It's not truly a 10% gain on the equity. It's a 100% gain because, remember, they only had $1 of equity. So they had 10% on total assets, but they had a 100% return on the equity. And it sounds like a good deal because leverage works very well when you make money and the market is going up. But, you know, whatever deal you make with, 
you know, an angel you may make with the devil as well. Because when the market goes down and they lose 10%, right, they don't lose 10%, um, they lose 100% of the equity. You know, because a 10% return on $10 is $1. But if you only had $1 to begin with in terms of equity, you're wiped out. You lose all of your equity. A bank that has all of its equity wiped out is essentially worthless. And then other banks don't want to do business with a bank that actually has no equity um, to give it in case something were to go wrong. So if you have $1 of equity, you have $9 in borrowed money, you have 10% of losses, you're wiped out, and your trading partners now can't even sue you because there's no equity left. They can fight over the assets, but those assets are claimed by the liabilities from the borrower in the first place. And that is the number one aspect right now for a bank run because you have fear of other banks being insolvent, like the bank that just had the 10% loss using 10 to 1 leverage or borrowing 10 to 1 times. And no bank wants to be in a position where they're owed money by a bank that is insolvent and can't pay them back. So they're very, very nervous. And so the slightest you know, bump in the night causes bank cause all the other banks to pull their loans and commitments from the bank that's feared to be insolvent. Where do you see well, modern-day bank runs happening in the next year to two years? Let's do a quick timeline. You know, they started happening with Washington Mutual, with Bear Stearns, with Lehman Brothers, with uh, Countrywide. All four of those banks had a bank run, and they all um, essentially happened the same way. It's not because the depositors, because Bear Stearns had very few depositors, actually, they had account holders in terms of securities um, from a retail side. But all those entities that are the counterparties that did business with these banks in terms of loans, credit default swaps, other swaps, you know, contractual deals, were afraid, and rightfully so, that these banks were insolvent. And so they pulled capital away. So even if their bank wasn't insolvent, you know, they were insolvent once the bank started pulling capital. So we have a long history in just the last few years of this happening. Um, it's happening right now in Europe where you have Greek banks that had a run on the capital, but it's being supported by the Greek Central Bank, which is in turn being supported by the ECB. You're seeing this in Italy. You're seeing it in Spain. Um, you will see it in France very quickly because um, France is heavily levered into Spain. So when you have a bank run in, no, sorry, heavily levered into Italy. So when you have a bank run in Italy, it causes every entity that realizes that French banks are heavily levered in the entity to pull capital of the French banks. And so it's a domino effect. And it goes on and on. And it'll bounce throughout all the EU, the continent of Europe, and then spill its way into the U.S. Um, the same thing with Asian banks. Asian banks, particularly China, has a similar issue. The near future, you, what you're going to do is either the banks are segregated, so you ring fence or you protect the core banking services, such as lending and saving, and have the government protect those and then let the speculative part of the bank sink and swim as they, are, as they can. Or you have the entire banking system reset. Now, that's not the end of the world. And you had Henry Paulson back in 2008, you know, come to Congress, you know, literally with his knee on the ground, begging, saying, if you don't give us, you know, $700 billion to a trillion dollars or whatever it is, you know, the world comes to an end. You know, banks have been going out of business for 2,000 plus years. And every single day, the sun rose again. Now, it's the end for a CEO of a bank who's, you know, retirement is tied up in the stock of that bank. But when a bank goes out of business, two new banks crop up take its place almost instantaneously. You know, that's capitalism. And that's the market, and that's the way it's supposed to work. The bank runs are inevitable. You're going to have some bank collapses. If somehow 
the powers that be managed to prevent that, and they will manage to prevent that because they are controlled by the oligarchs, and the oligarchs, of course, want to stay in the place of power, whether they perform or not. Well, then you're simply going to have the failing banks suck economic activity out of the entire populace, the entire country, the taxpayers, possibly the world. You so said you can limp along with the injury, or you can let the injury heal, then you can run along at full speed. But no matter which way you look at it, you're not going to be going at full speed in the near term. I can't remember if it's on your blog or in one of the interviews that you were saying that Spain should not have banned short selling at this time. Can you explain why? Because it doesn't work. You know, the U.S. banned short selling in 2008, and uh, the financial, the bank, um, the banking ETF index, if I'm not mistaken, dropped 48 percent from the start of the ban to right after the ban was ended. And after the ban was ended, you know what everybody did? They shorted the banks. You know, attempting to tell the marketplace to time out does not enable you to win the game. You know, if, if you're playing football, okay, and you're running, somebody's running after you and about to catch you, right before they grab you, it's not the time to real time out. You can do it, especially if you control the game. But, you know, that does not prevent the tackle, you know, because when timing comes, <laughs> you exactly where you started from. And, you know, you're going to get tackled anyway. So the way to work is let the game play, you know, to fruition and let the markets do as they want. The short sellers actually have um, a useful place in the dynamic life cycle of the market. They create a floor by having guaranteed buyers. When you short a stock, you basically borrow from somebody and then sell it in anticipation of the price of the stock falls. If the price of the stock falls, or even if it doesn't fall, eventually you have to buy the stock back. That gives you natural buyers in the market. So there's automatically a floor somewhere in that stock's price or that commodity's price because you have short sellers who have to buy it back, either to cover their losses or if they made a killing to monetize their game. You know, you don't get your profit until you complete the trade and you buy the stock back. By eliminating, taking short sellers out of the market, number one, you prevent that flaw because now you don't have a natural bias. You know, if the bank, if everybody decides that, you know, J.P. Morgan is truly an insolvent bank and nobody wants to do business with it, but then you just sell the stock and they're going to keep selling and selling and selling. Right, and you don't have natural buyers. You have people who are going to buy it, you know, in the anticipation that the people are selling it wrong. When they find out the people are selling it were right, but then they sell it. You're going to sell and sell. When you don't have buyers, then you have a very large gap in the bid and ask. And then when it eventually is a sale, it you know, it drops like a rock. You know, and another argument to go against or to support the bane of short selling is the fact that so what. You know, you have entities that are shorting in, uh, a stock, a yeah, bank stock. You know, if the bank stock is worthless, that's why it's being shorted. If it's not worthless, then the short sellers get burned. And that's how the market works. But, you know, you have entities who are trying to say, time out, don't tackle me now. And that's just not the way the game should play. Because eventually, when you say time back in, you're exactly back where it started from. I want to talk to you about the banking sector and government debt and how they're intertwined. I think the public needs to understand this. This is very confusing. One would think that it's obvious, but it's not. And we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back. Clayton Nolte spent 40 years studying and observing water. He is in love with water. He's dedicated to water. He has a relationship to water. And he's created these marvelous devices. And these devices go under your sink. They go in your shower head. They go in your main water line of your home. They go to your farms. 
They go to anywhere that you need to get water, including mobile units you can take around with you. People report that you get fresh-tasting, invigorating water that has a low surface tension, greater density, no more dry skin. You don't have to use as much soap when you're washing. It reduces the chlorine requirements for spas and swimming pools. It reduces corrosion and deposits in pipes. It increases the longevity of all of the systems that use water and reduces odors around water use facilities. And one of the big things it does is it improves the growth of crops with increased biomass. You need to go to naturalactionwater.com and read about the benefits of the devices that Clayton Nolte made. When you're done with that, we also did an interview with him. But if you really want to bring a totally different kind of water into your homes, into your apartments, into your buildings, into your farms, and in your land, go to naturalactionwater.com and call Natural Action Water at 928-567-6466, 928-567-6466. And back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to talk to Reggie Middleton about the big picture, that the banking sector and the government debt are totally intertwined and that the collapse of the banking sector could mean the collapse of the government finance. Reggie Middleton, I want you to talk about this so that people get it. Banks are used to be the guaranteed buyers of government debt. At least that's the case in um, the large developed countries, um, much of the EU and the U.S. as well. And what the government does and the governmental-related entities such as central banks, they allow the banks to buy government debt by giving preferential terms, low interest rates, free money, which is called zero, zero interest rate policy, etc. And then the banks buy, the government goes to lend money, uh, so they issue bonds, right, which are basically securitized loans. Um, the banks go and buy these bonds, they're able to hold the bonds on their balance sheet as risk-free assets, which essentially there is no such thing. You know, an asset has a risk by default because it's an asset, you know, so there's a risk that's applied to acts. If there was no risk to it, then there should be no return as well because uh, risk is the price of return. But not to get so uh, um, scientific, they're allowed to buy, they're allowed to put whatever government bonds that they purchase on their balance sheet as risk-free because it's risk-free, they don't have to hold additional capital as a buffer against these assets because there's no risk attached to these assets. So let's not to use, use the U.S., right, where the U.S. is relatively economically strong, with strong military, et cetera. Let's use countries with a weaker military, a weaker economy that are already in a strong recession or depression, such as Greece. Okay, Greece um, is essentially insolvent. Okay, Greece has uh, an economy that's, Past the doldrums, they have what high twenty, maybe thirty percent unemployment rate, and their economic activity is in reverse; is declining from already bad position. Yet, Greek banks are allowed to borrow money, you know, at a much lower interest rate than they should be able to borrow it, and they buy these Greek bonds from the Greek government, and they're holding it as risk-free assets, despite the fact the rest of the world is charging triple-digit returns um, for holding Greek debt basically saying that Greek debt is almost guaranteed to default, yet the Greek banks are holding this debt on their balance sheet as risk-free. In exchange for that, they don't have to hold capital against this, uh, these bonds, despite the fact, again, the rest of the world said these bonds are guaranteed to default and they're close to worthless. 
when it comes to refinancing these entities. And the ECB, which is the central bank for the central banks in Europe, has purchased a large amount of Greek bonds. And again, they're holding these Greek bonds on their balance sheet as risk-free as well. So we had a default, and we had a false refinance. And in the default, I think the Greek bonds were priced anywhere between 7 and 28 cents on the dollar. Um, no more than 48 cents on the dollar. So far from being risk-free, you've lost a max, a minimum of less than, of just a little more than half your capital to almost all your capital. So now at 7 cents on the dollar, you have a central bank and several other banks using the leverage model that I explained before, you know, a 10 to 1 leverage, borrowing um, $9 for every dollar that they have, okay, and they've taken a 93% loss. So if you take a 10% loss, with a 10 to 1 ratio, the leverage ratio, and you're wiped out. Imagine a 93% loss. You know, you're wiped out nine, ten times over. Despite that, you have banks that are still doing business and you're walking along like there's nothing wrong and we'll solve it, which comes back, brings everybody back to the bank run scenario. When everybody knows these particular banks, which is almost all of them, um, are operating on fumes and their balance sheets are farce and a joke, you know, everybody's nervous. The fact that the reason why everybody doesn't run is that the regulators are saying it's all right, wink, wink, to say that everything's um, on par in terms of valuation and that the powers that be are injecting large amounts of liquidity, giving free money, buying bad assets off the balance sheets, or at least allowing the bad assets off the balance sheets to be used as collateral for additional loans to dig them out of the hole where they got in the hole in the first place for making bad loans. So this is a cycle that's going back and forth and back and forth, and it's a continuous circle. Okay, but you're going nowhere. They're spinning one in a circle, making bad loans to refinance bad loans, which were bad because they were made to refinance other bad loans. Sooner or later, the music stops. When the music stops, someone's going to be left standing in the game of musical chairs. And that's basically how governments are financed by banks and vice versa. So what do you see happening to the currencies then? Well, the currencies are, are, are basically the strength of the currencies, and the liquidity currencies are a reflection of the strength of the nation. Um, and you have uh, the euro, which, you know, for, in many people's opinion, um, is artificially high considering the situation that the EU is in. Um, it doesn't necessarily reflect the fundamentals of the uh, EU. Um, but you have many entities that are in trouble. Uh, the U.S. is in significant trouble. The U.S. has almost all the problems the EU does except for one, and that's that uh, two. Um, the primary issue is with the U.S. and U.S. dollar is that we are truly a sovereign nation, where the only truly sovereign nation in the EU is Germany. You know, Germany essentially runs the ECB, you know, and the Bundesbank, which is Germany's central bank, essentially run the finances of Europe. Um, but that's not a plus for Germany because they're also pushed to be on the hook for all the failings of Europe as well. And these failings are multiples of German GDP. So Germany can't afford to bail out everybody. Is that why um, you said the German bond market is a whole house of cards that's ready to collapse? Exactly. For some reason, people think that the German economy is bulletproof. But Germany is an export nation. They make their money from selling things to other nations. BMWs, cars, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Porsches, high-end electronics, um, software, services. You know, you know, they make nice products. They do good. They have um, excellent engineering. But they make their money by selling to other, uh, other nations. Now, if you take a look at all their customers, the largest trading partner is the rest of the EU, ranging from recession to depression. The second largest trading partner is the U.S., 
okay, a recession, which started in 2007 and still hasn't ended. You know, we were under the, given the impression it ended by giving trillions of dollars of free money to the entities that put us there in the first place, but we're now just trillions of dollars of borrow, and we still have recessionary issues. Then you have Asia and China, which is their, the second or third largest trading partner, depending on how you count it. And China is basically on a precipice as well. China never fell because when the world started going to the Great Recession, China told its banks, lend, lend hard, lend to anybody. Okay, that created the false assumption that China's economy grew and GDP exploded while the rest of the world fell. But what China did was they just created a bubble. When the bubble popped in the rest of the world, China decided to inflate a new bubble. That bubble needs to pop. I mean, you have now performing assets, the bad assets, and their banking system, just like the U.S. had and the EU had. So with all the major trading partners going through the same, having the same recessionary land, hard landing or depressionary um, problems, exactly who is Germany going to sell their products to to make money to keep their economy going? Why do you Unless think they mar- bought the markets New Markets come and start spending a lot of money and accepting a lot of euros. You no, know, Germany is going to run the same recessionary problems that Spain, Italy, the U.S., and China has. Why did they buy the New York Stock Exchange, do you think, Deutsche Börse, in 2007 for $10 billion? I couldn't tell you exactly why. The logic is exchanges work on margins, and the larger the volume of uh, trade is being done, the more stronger your business is. And so the key is to grow the exchange. And the New York Stock Exchange is the biggest, deepest stock exchange in the world. Peter, there was a lot of people very upset about that. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> yeah, well, very yeah, upset. You know, nationalist pressures, yeah, and it happens, then it's going to happen a lot more. Usually, as nations um, get in trouble economically, you have a lot of nationalist sentiment. Sure. You know, whether it's right or wrong, because I'm not going to judge whether it's right or wrong, but it does happen. And when things are going very, very well, like the head of the bubble, you know, you didn't have nearly as much nationalist, nationalist sentiment. You know, you had a lot of foreigners buying assets in the U.S., and the U.S. bought a lot of assets, you know, in foreign nations. But, you know, when everything, when, when the party's going well, you know, the wine is flowing, the music is loud, everybody's happy. You know, when it's time to go home, then you get a lot, you know, people get much grouchier. And you're going to see much more natural sentiment when it's time to start defending your turf, the U.S., the EU, Asia. Stand by. We're going to go to a break, and we'll be right back. Trillions of dollars are being spent to renew and restore Iraq. That's why multinationals are there. It's an oil-rich country. It has tons of natural resources. And though it's war-torn and it is evolving as a marketplace, there just may be a bull in the most unsuspecting place in the world. I don't know how many places of the world that you know are debt-free or most of their economy is not based on debt. Iraq is the only one I can think of. For those of you who would like to do the necessary due diligence and possibly be involved in having the currency of Iraq called the dinar, go to dinartrade.com. Dinartrade.com has been known as the largest Iraqi dinar dealer since 2004 that's registered with the Department of the Treasury, has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, for which all currency imports clear through U.S. Customs, All of the currencies come directly from the source, are 100% authentic, and of non-criminal origin. If you can take a bet at a bar for $100, you can invest in the future of Iraq at Dinar Trade. Go to dinartrade.com. 
Welcome back to the show. This is Kim Greenhouse. We're here with Reggie Middleton. We're talking about the banking sector and government debt and conditions for a potential bank run. We've talked about liquidity markets. We've talked about Germany and Spain and Greece and the United States and how something is being set like a chain reaction to happen. And now I want to ask you about something that I think is very important in the business model area of business that you talk about having to do with looking at Google, Facebook, and Apple's business model. I know you've spoken about it a lot. I hope you're not tired of speaking about it. But I think it's really important because as Facebook went public, there was so much hype about it. And I know that you have said that it's an overrated stock. And the people aren't really seeing it clearly and doing the fundamentals on this. And I'd like you to talk about Facebook a little for a minute or so and then talk about the two different business models of Google and Apple, which I thought was fascinating on your blog. Just a couple of minutes, if you would. Well, Facebook is a social networking stop, um, like uh, to a lesser extent AOL, to a greater extent MySpace and a few other, quite a few others. Um, Facebook is by far the most successful in terms of numbers. And, but it's still relatively small. And in my opinion, I think Facebook has more astute management than the other companies. Uh, that being said, you know, it's speculation. You know, it's almost a startup. You know, it's very small. Uh, I'm sorry, it's very young. And it has some of the stiffest competition of uh, any of the companies in its entire genre. Um, on top of that, during the IPO, <coughs> Facebook was marketed by some of the best sales entities in the field. You're talking about JP Goldman Morgan, Sachs? Yeah. Goldman Sachs, yeah. you know, Morgan Stanley. Now, these guys' job is to sell the stock, right? Their job is not to make you rich. Their job is to sell the stock. Their job is to make themselves rich by satisfying their customers. Their customer is the Facebook entity itself, corporate entity. It's not the, you know, those um, people and entities which are attempting to buy the IPO. You know, if that was the case, and if the analysts of any of these companies had any uh, um, ability whatsoever, they would have said the same thing you've heard from me on my blog, that Facebook was extremely overpriced. I mean, multiples, over, overpriced by multiples. And that's what happened to the Facebook stock, basically. Um, what the underwriters, the banks did was they sold the Facebook stock into demand. They didn't sell it priced upon um, the ability to get a strong investment return, and they attempted to get the highest price the market would support. And if there was an indication that the market would support a higher price, then they rose, raised the price, and they raised the price significantly. So it came out at, I think, at $38. It might have popped to 40 It closed about $38 later on that day, and then it's been downhill ever since. And, uh, you know, you can't really blame um, Facebook because, you know, Facebook's job is to get as much money as it can at the IPO, and they got as much money as possible. You can, in a way, blame the banks if you don't understand the banking model, but there are very few banks where there's a true fiduciary duty to the investor. That's you know, very if the astute. banks did have a fiduciary duty, <laughs> right? If they did have a fiduciary duty to the investor, then the banks were getting sued, but the banks would never, you know, IPO Facebook at $38 of that fiduciary duty because it's a ripoff. You know, they're literally removing capital and wealth from IPO investors and putting it directly into the Facebook co- corporate coffers. So, again, the fiduciary duty to the banks right now or to the banking executives' bonus pool. You have a lot of guts. You're very gutsy. It Serious. Is it is, so. I know. You're gutsy. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not yeah. in New York, New York with you right now. 
<laughs> I'd have to duck in a car or something. I don't know. <laughs> there may be, there may be, you know, the occasional uh, person who may disagree with it. But you know, I'm I'm a rational guy. If there's anybody who disagrees with that statement, simply explain to me, show me how. Now go on your show, and I write out. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll admit it. But it's close, to virtually impossible to show me where I'm wrong. Absolutely impossible. The reason is because this is the truth. You know. Now, once you have an entity whose fiduciary responsibility is to its client or investor, as in the retail or the institutional investor, then you have uh, a different case. If they get paid directly from the enrichment of their um, investing clients and or and or if they have a legal fiduciary responsibility to those clients, then you have a different set of behavior. Okay? A different set of behaviors. But then again, you wouldn't have the blow-ups that you have and derivatives, et cetera, because they never sell a product they couldn't understand and it's not clearly priced and didn't have an easily forecasted and investment horizon because it's their money online as well. Now, before we talk about the Apple business model and the Google business model, which people are really watching this and talking about it, there's a lot of people talking about how Apple will, no matter how great their products are, that they're eventually not going to be able to compete with Steve Jobs gone and their current business model. What you said was so astute, but I want you to say it on the air. Talk about their different models. I know you've written about it, but it's really profound. So everybody listen to this. This is Reggie Middleton talking about the two different business models between Apple and Google in the mobile computing war, I should say. We're going to go to a quick break, and then I want you to talk about that. I want to share with you one of my favorite books about water. I'm a big water advocate, and I do tons of research on water. It's called Dancing with Water, The New Science of Water, a guide to naturally treating, structuring, enhancing, and revitalizing your water by MJ Pangman and Melanie Evans. If you really want to understand the central role of water in your body and how it relates to your health, and you want to learn about the amazing properties that water has and all that it can do for your cells and your mitochondria, if you want to find out why it is that water is not just H2O, but that water can enhance your health critically, pick up this book called Dancing with Water, The New Science of Water, where MJ Pangman and Melanie Evans bridge the gap between the ancient knowledge of water and the new knowledge of water and bring it home to you so you can include this information and this knowledge in your day-to-day life and feed your cells, feed your mitochondria, and get the best water that you can get into your bodies. Go to their website, Dancing with Water, at dancingwithwater.com, and pick up this book. All right, and back to the show. Reggie Middleton, welcome back to It's Rainmaking Time. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to now talk about Google and Apple's business model. And, Reggie, break the news to people about what you see, what your perspective is. Go for it. Let's discuss Google first. Google is known for its search engine primarily by most lay people and to a lesser extent is known as an advertising, uh, an online ad- advertising agency. Uh, Google actually makes the vast majority of its money from advertising, uh, not directly from search, but the advertising money that Google makes is enabled by search. Okay, but because Google started as a search engine and then um, started monetizing its search engine prowess with advertising, um, people mistakenly assume that Google is um, the tool that it used to monetize its business model 
if I said that clearly enough, uh, let me try it again. Uh, Google has a business, okay, and they use certain tools to monetize that business, to make money off the business initially. Um, a lot of people are mistaking the tools that Google used to make money with initially with the actual business. Google is not a search engine company. It's not an advertising company. Google is a data company. Google's goal and its mission is to marshal, gather, control, resell, and uh, manage data. And to that end, um, Google has extreme aspirations and is extremely powerful. Um, data is whether it's the things that you search on the web, which is also data, whether it's uh, information to seek things or to buy things, it's data, whether it's videos or for YouTube, which is data, um, whether it's files that you upload to Google Drive or send through Gmail, we're talking data, whether it's a telephone call that you make via your Android handset, which is data, whether it's files that you use through Android, Google Maps, navigation, any of the Google products, you know, it's all data-driven. And Google wants to be the gatekeeper for your data. Now, in a digital world, the master of data is essentially the master of the world, you know, as some critics would put it. This makes Google a very powerful company. It also makes Google um, a dangerous company for competitors in a very diverse set of industries because uh, these competitors took data for granted and they attempted to monetize the tools for data and make that their business model versus that data itself. Great distinction. Great distinction. Thank you. Examples of companies that have done that and have been run over have been newspaper companies. Newspaper companies tried to make news proprietary and ignored the data that the news traveled through, and so they gave the data away for free and tried to uh, have a proprietary wall around the news itself. What Google did was Google broke down the proprietary walls of news distribution and said, as long as we can control the data, you know, the advertising, the bits that went back and forth, you can have the news marginally at marginal cost for free. Okay, and that has put the classified news industry, the classified listings industry, basically out of business. Classified listings are free. Think of Craigslist, think of just doing a search for what you want versus having to look into a yellow pages or going to classified ads. When was the last time you went to classified ads to look for something? I was too young to remember. <laughs> and you know, that's the last time you opened up the yellow pages. You know, so I think I was ten. And, <laughs> <laughs> so what's happening is Google's taking this business model, right? They've perfected it by cost shifting, and that's how they're able to give um, classified ads away for free. They gave the product away for free by shifting and burdening the cost from the end user, which is the person that looks at the ads, to the entities that either generate the data or the entities that deliver the data. So through advertising, they have entries pay for advertising. The revenue from the advertising is used to support the delivery of the data. And so they cost shift, taking the cost away from the end user. But And might take the cost away from the end user, you eliminate the barrier for the end user so you get many, many more end users because there's no barrier to hurdle, no hurdle to jump. You simply walk in. And they actually um, benefit those who they shifted the cost to because by having them bear the cost, they're also able to direct some return to them as well, such as new viewers through advertising or new potential customers through advertising. So this cost-shifting method has allowed Google to walk through several industries. I use classified ads and yellow pages as one. Um, you had news as another industry. Um, you could have GPS, something as um, diverse as Garmin, 
and GPS, where you know, and a lot of people pay decent money for personal GPS to go in their car. Um, GPS systems come built in the cars, airplanes, um, personal navigation systems, boats. Right now, very, very few people buy standalone GPS systems, right? The reason is everybody has it in the cell phone. And right. if you look at the cost, how much do you pay for Google Maps? Nothing, because Google has cost shifted the expense from the end user to somebody else or to somewhere else. Okay, so... You have now you have GPS systems, you have news, you have classified ads, you have yellow pages. Google has now done this with cell phones by taking the one of the highest costs of, for cell phone manufacturers, which is the operating system, and dropping it to zero. They've actually dropped it below zero, and they've made a negative cost by allowing a lot of the manufacturers and OEMs to share in ad revenue and share in the revenue from um, application downloads. So where you had an expense um, having to hire thousands or hundreds of programmers to develop an operating system and maintain it and have this maintained operating system still end up inferior to Apple's, you now have a superior operating system to Apple's that you don't, not only do you not have to pay for, but you actually get a potential revenue stream from. And the only effort that you have to um, exert is customizations. You have to pay for all customizations, of which Google actually has a consulting team to help you with that. But they always started out being in very different businesses from the get-go. I don't remember Apple ever being in the data or data mining business or trying to control and know everything about everybody. They're in a totally different business. So are we comparing apples and apples? No pun intended. But what are we comparing? What happened was Google's predatory cost-shifting business model um, simply ran into Apple's turf. But Apple was not in that turf in the beginning. Apple used to be personal computer manufacturer. And that's how they started in the 70s. Apple predated Microsoft, and Apple had a model of um, high-margin, high-profit um, devices. Not to be sold in volume, but to be sold at high-margin, high-profit. That worked well until Microsoft came along, and Microsoft decided to commoditize the um, item. So what they did was they sold a high volume um, of lower-margin product. It's arguable that the Microsoft computers or Microsoft Power computers were inferior to the Apple computers. But what happened is once you get enough people on board and enough R&D goes in, the quality of the device goes up at the same time that the cost of the device goes down. So you have PCs that were now costing one-third, one-eighth, one-quarter, uh, up to one-eighth of what the Apple computers were costing, and were either close to, on par, or superior to the Apple computers. This essentially almost bankrupted Apple. Apple almost went out of business. Um, Steve Jobs, who was ousted from the board, returned to the company that he started, and he reinvigorated Apple by changing the um, business model and attempted to compete with uh, Microsoft um, successfully. And Microsoft is a different company than Apple. Microsoft sold software, but they worked very closely with hardware manufacturers to have a complete product. What Apple did was they created a complete product in the end, and then they looked for other industries of which they could take that business model and extend it to. It started initially with portable music players with the iPod, and they um, their business model of high profit margin, um, high profit high margin um, devices. They then melded with uh, the liberal arts approach of creating a device that was visually and aesthetically appealing for the creatives. One. Okay, and right, and then easy to use. Number two, so they took the tech side of it and made it very easy to use, very visually appealing, okay, and very simple, okay. And then 
they made sure they paid very, a very small amount for the part so they could sell it at a very high margin. They did this using newer technology than Sony. Sony had a complete lock on the portable media market, the Sony Walkman, a complete lock. Okay, Sony was taken out in a matter of years, and you know the iPod became the de facto standard. Um, Apple took the exact same business model methodology and leaped into the cell phones with it. And again, almost took over the cell phone in the smartphone market. Okay, a lot of people believe that Apple was the first in um, portable media players. They were nowhere near the first. They simply had a more usable business model. A lot of people believe, and these are people who don't follow the industry, of course, that Apple was the first with touchscreen smartphones. Not even close. They would be by Nokia. They would be by HTC, which manufactured phones for everybody, by Microsoft, Windows phones, by quite a few phones. They would be by uh, Samsung even. Okay? But they created a business model that was aesthetically appealing and had high margins. Okay? And then they did the same thing with the iPad. A lot of people believe that Apple created the tablet. You know, Microsoft sold tablets back in 1992 or 93. You know, we're talking well, 15 years before the iPad came out. Okay, but the iPad is a stripped-down tablet. It has less capability, but it's visually appealing, and it's very, very simple. Okay, so that business model has worked from industry to industry, from item to item. Um, and Apple has done extremely well by using that business model. What Google has done is basically what Apple did. They stepped in. Um, what Google has done is basically what Microsoft did to Apple. Google looked at the business model, looked at Apple's business model, it analyzed the strengths, analyzed the weaknesses, and so one of the weaknesses is that in order for Apple to continue um, capitalizing on that business model, it had to have very high margin. So Google took the important parts of the Apple product, recreated it, right, using superior technology, and they gave it away for free. So no matter how good your product is, if you compete with free, you're going to have real competition. Painful, terrible. That's what they did with the Android OS. <laughs> Okay, so now you're still in the air to see who's going to win, and you still have Microsoft, who I think is actually quite a um, potent competitor. Isn't it monopolistic for Google to do that, to turn around, strip it down, and offer it for free? I mean, eventually Google may have to face some type of international monopoly situation if it gets more like that. I mean, they're going to have to deal with the Justice Department just the way Microsoft did. Well, there are two things. Number one, Google doesn't sell Android. It gives it away. Okay? And it never did sell it. See, Microsoft sold its operating system. So if you sell the operating system and then you attempt to undercut your competitors in price, then you can have potential antitrust issues. Now, that's number one. Number two, in order to have an antitrust issue, you have to be um, have majority market share or be a monopoly. Okay? Google, didn't. Google was an underdog. In 2007, they had less than 1% market share. 2012, they have about 56%, and they're the fastest-growing participant in the market. Are they a beast? Are they the beast? That's how fast they're growing. They're growing like a beast. Yeah, well, they're they're growing like a beast. They're not the beast yet, but um, if if they continue at this rate, they'd be, I'd say, in the 70s by this time next year. I don't know about you, but I'm scared of the cloud. I'm very afraid of the cloud. I like cloud well, computing for some things, but I'm scared that all our information is there. It doesn't belong on Google servers. Everything, your email, your whole life, your documents, your trade secrets. I don't know. I'm very much for still being able to have your own computer, take a laptop, have your data with you, not have it on some central server that you don't even know who's looking at it. What do you think, Reggie? Well, I agree with you. I'm, I'm quite paranoid, and I don't want my stuff on other servers as well. But, you know, at the, in this day and age, most people realize that, or should realize that, they've given up that uh, privilege a long time ago. Every single time you send an email, 
you send your stuff through someone else's servers. Even if you own your own email server, right? You want, you want you send the email, it leaves your email server and goes to someone else's server and probably bounces through other servers along the way, right? Every time you make a phone call, you know, your voice through digital data packets goes through the cloud, you know, through the digital ethosphere. I can tell you right now how you and I could go through NSA right now. You want me to say the word and we'll go right to the NSA computers. Would you be interested? Yeah, probably. I'm probably already there. But <laughs> no, we're there. I'm, we're definitely there. If I say the word bomb, B-O-M-B, okay, we're there in about two seconds. That's how profound what we're living in is. It's actually even faster, and all emails are cleared through a central place. The new building that's coming up in Utah is going to make literally every phone call, every email have to be cleared, if you know what I'm saying. It's going to have algorithms very much like high-frequency trading, but it's Big Brother at the highest level of speed going through bits of data. It's unbelievable. Could you open up the Starship Bridge, please, Andy? And let's hear from Hank Heister. Welcome to the show, Hank. Thank you. It's uh, been a titillating, interesting listen. (laughs) Do you have a question or a comment for Reggie? So many of the topics that I have interest, you've already discussed. uh, But one in terms of from a reality position, if we if we look at the hundreds of trillions of debt and uh, unfunded liabilities that we have as a country and obviously the world, uh, from a practical point of view of just servicing this kind of debt, where is the edge of the cliff? We're already either hanging over, or is this just an illusion? Great question. Well, uh, once it comes to unfunded liabilities, I think you are going to have unfunded liabilities in perpetuity because many large entities or nations don't have, they're not forced and don't have the need to fund the liability immediately. Okay, you only have a problem when liabilities that are coming due cannot be funded or met. Mm -hmm. So you can have a pension fund with, say, you know, $100 billion worth of liabilities and you only have, you know, the assets of capital to meet, say, any sixty, eighty billion dollars at any given time. As long as when these liabilities come due, you're able to fund them, you know, you're able to carry it, then you are all right. The problem and this is how a lot of the funding of sovereign entities have been done as well, um, you don't have to be able to pay your debt back. You simply have to be able to service it. The problem with Greece is they ran out of wall. Uh, ran out of roll and they couldn't service their debt. So when it's time to make the coupon payment, they couldn't do it. Now, when you can't service your debt, there's an issue. Now, when many entities cannot service their debt, you have many issues. But again, um, I used to have children, and my children would ask, Daddy, are we wealthy or are we rich or are we poor? And I would say, we're only as wealthy as the poor people around us are. So, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have, what dictates what your wealth is, what your capability is, is the entity surrounding you. So if you had a dollar and everybody else only had 25 cents, you're wealthy. But you can have a billion dollars, but if you go to buy a house and the average price of the house is $2 billion, then you're poor. And I go through this story in saying that the entities that cannot service their debt are not in as bad a position if all the entities around them cannot service their debt as well. So the end of the story is the, those entities that can service their debt and or have a strong military or technological or economic uh, power base are the ones that are going to lead into the future. And right now, I am very, very bearish in the United States 
from a fundamental perspective. But um, we are better than many entities in the EU, and I'm very suspect of what's coming out of Asia, particularly China, because the numbers couldn't be trusted from the very beginning. So you know, there's no telling what's in there because whatever they say is whatever they say it is. We have absolutely no idea what the truth is, but we can take a look at um, the anecdotal information and you can see that what's being reported is not necessarily indicative of uh, what's on the ground. Very good. Is there an actual probability, in your opinion, that the Federal Reserve would be dissolved and, in fact, would go from a fiat currency to some asset-based currency in, in some reasonable future? Um, I don't. I'm not a political expert, but you know, from a, some take this answer as a layperson's, um, layman's opinion. But I doubt so very seriously. Mm-hmm. Number one, um, what's interesting the discussion about the fiat currency. I believe all currencies are fiat because the uh, if you define fiat currency as a currency that is derives its value from the belief that it has value, then that's practically any asset. If you go to an asset-based currency. Well, then the value of that currency is based upon the belief that the asset that backs it has value, which brings you back to the fiat argument again. (laughs) Very good. Reggie, do you think we're going to suffer from hyperinflation here in America? It's hard for me to tell. You know, in order for inflation or hyperinflation to take place, you need uh, the absence of deflation. And that there's nothing but deflationary forces around because there's no economic growth, there's no demand. You know, so there has to be demand for inflation or hyperinflation to take place. Now, hyperinflation is a different animal than inflation, but there still has to be a bid. And, you know, there isn't the, almost the entire bid for risk assets in the U.S. stems from the government. If you remove the government forces, there is practically no bid for risk assets. So until that is rectified, I don't see inflation as a problem. You're not worried about a repeat of the Weimar Republic here in the United States? Not right now, but okay. the problem, the issue with hyperinflation is it never asks you permission to show up. So it usually happens very, very quickly. That's I mean, my concern. See, it's imperceptible. Yeah. Well, it's not perceptible. If, if everybody talks about it, then you can't see it's imperceptible. Right, but I'm... But I'm the fact that you ask about yeah. it means that there's, you know, people are aware that there's, there's a risk of it. You know, the issue is in order for it to happen, there has to be a bit. The government has tried to stoke and create inflation for five years running now. And they simply cannot, you know, in order for to create inflationary demand, in, in order to create inflation, you need to have um, actionable demand. And that means you need capital, you need economic activity. We don't have that. You know, people still don't want overpriced houses. People still don't want overpriced stocks. The volume in the equity markets are abysmal, which is why you see the price of stocks go up, because there's nobody trading except for 15 servers over in Jersey City across Hudson River. And they're pinging each other. Those are the trades. Those are servers pinging each other. Those are not mom and dad sitting with a Schwab account saying, I want to buy, you know, 100 shares of IBM. So basically, everything's relational is the bottom line. There's more mechanisms that are going to be taking place and touching each other for hyperinflation to happen, just like what you're talking about. Right. But the money supply is growing, but it's growing within the banks and the banking system. They're not releasing the money, you know. You don't get the money. Do you feel that you have access to more money now? No, it's no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, for, from a volume perspective, the money supply may be growing, but practically it has to be released from the banking system in order for it to have an inflationary. That's effect. true. That's true. So then, basically, it's not happening in the market. No, it's not because the market doesn't have access, and it's the market of the bank servers pinging each other, which is what you have when you have a very low volume equity market increase in price. 
that in itself is an oxymoron. You know, <laughs> how could you have an increase in price with low volume? If nobody's buying it, why is the price going up? So what do we tell Apple to do to get more competitive so that Google's not taking over Apple? Well, Apple, yeah, Apple is quite competitive now. It's not like they're starving. They're quite competitive. Apple is a victim of its own success. Um, Apple, number one, sells so many of its products, so many iPhones, you know, so many iPads, that there are but so many vendors that they can go to to get the parts for them. Okay, and what Google has wisely done was they've created competitors and enemies out of Apple's vendors. You know, Apple can only go to Samsung and LG for their HD screens, for their memory chips, for their CPUs. Okay, and LG and Samsung are some of the biggest Android manufacturers out. As a matter of fact, Samsung, which is um, Apple's largest supplier, if I'm not mistaken, their largest supplier for their iPhone parts in total, is Apple's largest competitor. Wow. And Samsung now sells more smartphones than Apple does. So how do you compete with your vendor? It's virtually impossible. You, you cannot compete with your vendor because you rely on your vendor for parts. Now, if Apple sold less phones, they can spread it out. But they can't because there are not many entities that can um, manufacture 10 to 1,500 million parts or 400 million phones. I'm sorry. Do you have an iPad? So, you know, I had an iPad, and I gave it to my mother. Because I found, personally, I found the Android devices to be superior. I but see. I am a very high-end user. What's happening, though, is the Android devices are becoming, using the kiss stupid, to keep it simple, stupid. And they're, you know, very capable. And very recently, the Android manufacturers, OEMs, such as Samsung, have learned how to market and advertise. For some reason, up until, I think, late last year, or last year, they just did not know how to market. While Apple is a marketing Genius, yes, yes, indeed. And I understand you can't, you know, beat everybody at everything, but at some point you need to realize Apple's doing a good job. You're not doing a good job. Hire Apple's marketing staff if you have to. You know, (laughs) it it, it amazes me how companies would sit back and let Apple simply wipe up the market with them. I'd say at least half of Apple's success stems less from Apple's competency and more from the incompetency of their competitors. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Maybe they should hire you on the uh, board of directors or something. But then you won't be able to talk about them. We can't have that. (laughs) (laughs) I do have some interesting ideas for Apple. Apple's weakness is basically its cloud infrastructure. Apple is not a data company, even though they have significant data assets, such as their credit card database. Um, But they're not a data company. They're basically Apple products were made to work off of PCs and uh, the desktop. And, And Android was an operating system that was developed in the cloud. You know, if you have an Android phone, all the updates happen by clicking an icon on the phone. You don't have to plug it into anything. As a matter of fact, the only, thing, only time you ever have to plug up an Android is to recharge it. And now they even have wireless recharging. Um, Apple is moving to the direction, but to overcome App, um, Google and even Amazon and cloud services takes a large amount of infrastructure and effort and resources. Now, Apple has the ability to do that, but to put that type of investment in causes to drop the margins. And if you drop the margins, that goes to share price. So, again, they're stuck between a rock and a hard price. Remember, Apple's business margin, I mean, business model was never to make the best product. It was to make the prettiest, simple product with the highest margin. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. I would like to complete this segment with you by asking you something about your children. What are you concerned about for the country and the financial atmosphere that your children are inheriting? What is your greatest concern right now for them? Talking from a country perspective, uh, my biggest complaint to the country 
are that number one, we relied our biggest economic engine and our biggest export is essentially non-productive, and that's finance and media. You know, we produce, we sell a lot of movies, we sell a lot of uh, um, financial products, but the financial products that we sold are basically hocus pocus. It's you know we sell fraud, and you see how a lot of products that Goldman Sachs sold to Europe and European nations blew up. A lot of derivatives. Now, there's nothing wrong with derivatives per se than necessary, but when you start relying so much on finance as an export without any tangible benefit, then you lose in the global competition. You know, and I'm afraid that as fin- as the financial industry shrinks significantly because, you know, the fraud eventually catches up on it, there may be nothing to replace it. Back when we sold technology, when we sold hard manufactured parts and goods, and we sold useful, irreplaceable services, then we were an extremely competitive country, and we basically couldn't be compared to. As of right now, that's still the case, but if you eliminate the fraud portion of the finance, or the potentially perceivable fraudulent portion, of global finance, then you know our exports are diminished significantly, and the GDP is diminished significantly. Okay, so I need for the country to remain competitive and remain on top. You know, and I also need for the superior participants to be rewarded commensurately, and we don't have that now. Right now, it's a country led by oligarchs. The oligarchs are allowed to um, misbehave and ill-perform and still get paid as if they were the top performers. And once that changes, then my children, who necessarily may not come from the most privileged backgrounds or the most connected backgrounds, still have the opportunity to get paid for their efforts and for their accomplishments versus whether they were established and born in an oligarchical position or family or not. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you being with us at It's Rainmaking Time and taking time out of your evening. I know you've been doing other media interviews and I just really appreciate it, and we all appreciate it, and we've all learned a lot from you, and we'll continue to by going to boombusblog.com. Reggie Middleton, big hug from Kim Greenhouse and Bruce Barker and Andrew Abong in Portland and all of us at It's Rainmaking Time. God bless you, and thank you so much. Well, thank you. Enjoy your evening. Good night.